Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Welcome to our podcast, Corner Table Talk, where we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. If you have questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So how many people do you know whose first job was in a restaurant? put themselves through school while waiting tables, or took a restaurant job at night while going out on auditions and go-sees during the day. I know a lot of actors and a lot of models that have come through the doors of various restaurants during the years. Bussers, dishwashers, delivery men jobs that have provided countless workers with entry-level positions, and even the cook who was on the cooking line at your favorite steakhouse may soon see his or her job replaced by artificial intelligence. No health care, salary, maternity leave, sick pay required. Is this the future of dining and food? My guest today highlights these issues and much more, including how COVID has accelerated trends that have been in the pipeline. The series on Hulu, The Next Thing You Eat, the host is David Chang. David is the chef and founder of a growing restaurant and media empire since opening his first restaurant, Momofuku Noodle Bar, in 2004 in New York City. He is the recipient of six James Beard Awards, recognized as GQ's Man of the Year and a Time 100 honoree. He's also the host of the Dave Chang Podcast and two Netflix original documentary series, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, and Ugly Delicious. His cookbook, Momofuku, and memoir, Eat a Peach, are both New York Times bestsellers. This guy doesn't miss. <laughs> In addition, he's just out with a new book called Cooking at Home, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying About Recipes and Love My Microwave. Co-written with contributor to the New York Times and the New Yorker, author Priya Krishna. Lots to talk about. David Chang, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Brad, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you so much. My pleasure, man. Nice to have you. So, Dave, I kick things off with our short order questions, so I'll fire a few off at you. What is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to? Ever since my son was born, I pretty much have no idea what's going on in the world of popular music. I listen to a lot of children's nursery rhymes. <laughs> Currently, the soundtrack to My Little Pony is in heavy, heavy rotation. But the one constant that he has listened to um, ever since he started listening to music, like three months old, is he's a big fan of reggae. He loves the beat. He loves the harmony. He It's the only thing he like dances to. And outside of that, maybe some something that is like like Baby Shark and stuff like that. But for the most part, he just likes like children's songs. And I've tuned out. I have no idea what's being played anymore. I have no idea what's going on in popular music. And I feel so out of place with music. So I, I don't know if I answered that in any way, shape or form if that's helpful to anybody. No, man, that, that that's a great answer. My son is now 34, but I can relate to those days. And I was so happy when I could finally put on a little music and get him to bob his head. But uh, <laughs> I can relate. Totally. So Dave, tell me, uh, what is your morning routine? You know, it's changed throughout the years. Uh, but currently, I wake up because we just have a newborn and, and I'm usually helping out there first thing because um, it's usually like getting up at six, helping out with the newborn, taking the dog out, getting breakfast ready around seven o'clock. And then my son is up around 730. 
So that's pretty much my day. And I never really drank coffee beforehand, but now I need it. I need it. I need my <laughs> cup of coffee in the morning. So tell me, what is your preferred footwear of choice? I know you, if you're walking that dog, you, you got to have something comfortable on your feet, man. What are you wearing? I'm wearing Nikes uh, almost all the time, a variety of Nikes. So currently I'm wearing a lot of these Nike slip-ons because I don't have to bend down and tie my shoelaces. So that, that's, that's my footwear of choice right now. Excellent, man. And, and you got your little plastic bags you're picking up after your dog, I hope? All the time. All the time. <laughs> Good man. All right. So best live musical performance you've ever seen? You know, this is a pretty easy, but it wasn't a full concert. I was at a charity event and Prince was supposed to play, but he showed up late. So they didn't think he was going to play. So they had a bunch of other musicians play, but everyone was there to see Prince. And then he showed up at like the last second and he played two songs and it was just like the most electric thing I've ever seen. And I was mostly enamored with what he was wearing. It felt like he was wearing these, um, it was like a one piece suit with boots involved. The whole thing was just, I, that was just the cool, but I didn't realize like how short he was too, but how was he just wailing? Like what an amazing guitar player. And I don't even think he sang. I just remember him just going on like two minutes, two songs of 30 minutes of just ripping. And it was so out of place for the audience. That's what I loved. He, he just he didn't play anything that anyone knows. It was just like a free jam. And what I loved was that. I'll remember that because I just thought like, wow, this guy's doing whatever he wants to do. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Like I, in like a, an environment that I'd never thought I'd ever see that happen. And that was the most memorable, fun experience I've ever had because I just never saw that before. I never saw him before. It was amazing. Man, I can I can totally picture that. And Prince was just an incredible, not you know, perform live performance, amazing singer, amazing, but the musicianship, man, that he possessed, as you alluded to, was was just absolutely astonishing. Did not expect in the jam, so that was pretty cool. Maybe that uh, that one piece makes an appearance on one of your uh, Netflix specials. Or <laughs> no, 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 not for you. I would not be able to fit that over my thigh, right, right thigh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, next one. How much should a good burger in a full-service restaurant cost? Oh, man, that's funny. You know, I remember when the Minetta Tavern in New York City had their, like, black label burger, and it was, like, 30-something dollars. And before that, Danielle Balloud had the foie gras stuffed short rib burger at DBG, DB Bistro. And that was, like, mid-30s in the early aughts. And people were so angry. And now I feel like that's commonplace. I feel the price is leveled out at a sit-down full-service restaurant to like the the high teens to low twenties. Um, but this is a larger conversation because uh, I feel like if things need to get better in the restaurant industry, people need to pay more money for food. So I don't know what it should be—not just burgers, but all food. Right? Food needs to be more expensive for some people and less expensive for many. And uh, we can we can touch on some of that, too, because I, I brought that up for a reason. And I think you make some really good points in some of the things that I've heard you talk about, you know, in terms of the cost structure of restaurants and, you know, our, our willingness to live with a, you know, a single digit profit uh, margin, which, uh, you know, is not sustainable. All right. New to L.A. from New York, Knicks or Lakers? Oh, Lord. You know, I can't, you know. I, can I not choose the Lakers? Is that going to get me in trouble? Because I'd rather choose the Clippers simply because I, they're not the Lakers. I'm so sorry, everybody. That's going to get me in trouble. I know. Somewhere it's going to get you. Somebody's going to get mad. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Favorite L.A. restaurant for date night with your wife? Be honest, I have not taken her on a date night in L.A. yet <laughs> because of you know her pregnancy and there's been some health stuff. So I haven't and I'm looking forward to taking her out. And the one thing she wants to eat is sushi. So I'm figuring out where to take her. So sushi for sure. In New York City, it was Shuko. In L.A., I'm still figuring that this out. Do you have any suggestions? Matsuhisa, of course. You know, Nobu out in Malibu is fun, but it's a little bit of a scene and a little hectic. Well, I will definitely check that out. Matsuhisa might be a little bit closer to us, but uh, I, I will say for sure our first date, date night, which probably is going to happen in a month or so, is going to be sushi for sure. Okay. Um, last one of these. So who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? I would probably... I just found out more about my genealogy. I'd probably say my great-grandfather. I can't stop thinking about what it must have been like for him to come to America in the early 1920s from South Korea. I, I think about that a lot. I've read some of his letters. I've read a lot of these things. He spent a long time in America, lived through the Great Depression, spent a lot of time in the Deep South. And I just want to know what he felt like being here. And he had a, an extraordinary life as I'm learning these things because I just never knew because I just don't ask my parents these things because it always ends in a sad story. But that's why I, I want to know what it must have been like for him to be in this country uh, so many years ago without any connection to his homeland. Yeah, man. Wow. That, that's fascinating. And I, and I do want to um, ask you about your mom and dad. I know your mom, I believe, was from South Korea, your dad from North Korea. But you know, the other thing that what you just said brings to mind is how much we document now of our lives. And I wonder if our sons are going to be as interested when they, when they get older. It's be like enough already from you guys. <laughs> it's a good chance they're going to be like, all right, all right. Yeah. All right. So let's let's jump in. Um, first off, how are you? Congratulations. I know you and your wife had a, a, a newborn, a, another son, I believe. Yeah. How you doing? I'm great. You know, I'm just I'm just trying to support her. And uh, I'm on full-time daddy daycare for my other son. So, uh, but everyone's healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm learning to be more grateful every day and everything's good. Excellent, man. So I read somewhere where you said chefs don't want to be called chef. And I always thought that was a sign of respect like doctor. And I've been in the restaurant business my whole life. Is that not the case? It is a sign of respect when you meet somebody for the first time, right? Like, um, I, that's what I feel like. Like, uh, you know, when I talk to a great chef, uh, I don't even know who, like anybody that I grew up, I call them chef for the first time. It would be like not calling a doctor a doctor for the first time. And then as you get to know them, they're like, don't call me doctor every time. You know what I mean? Like if you were a medical doctor, right. Brad, I wouldn't, you know, would, I, I don't think you'd want me to address you doctor every time I, I asked you, you know, Dr. Brad or something like that. So uh, I don't know. I kind of like that, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like a, a lot of my peers, at least, you only use that as like not a derogatory thing, but almost to like make fun of or to make light of a situation. Like like somebody spills something or chops something poorly. And you're like, nice job, chef. Good job, chef. <laughs> Got you, man. Well, thank you for, for, for that clarity. Um, so you've been living in L.A., having moved from New York City. Um, what prompted the move? We were planning on doing this uh, pre-pandemic, um, mainly because I had stepped down from all roles at Momofuku. Uh, as a, technically, I get what we had hired Marguerite, who had been with us for I don't know eight years at the time to be their CEO, and we had a culinary team in place, and that was a long time to get to that point. 
and I wanted to focus on doing more things in media. And, um, you know, after 20 plus years in New York, it was someplace that my wife and I want to get a little bit closer to, to her parents as well. I think having our child changed our outlook on what and how we wanted to be. We miss New York greatly. Maybe we'll be back there, but right now we're, we're static to be here. Yeah, man, I can relate. I moved from LA, uh, from New York to LA in uh, 1989. I was born and raised in New York and you, you never get over New York City, man. You know, you will always feel that, that tug, but LA has a lot to offer, especially for a young growing family. Absolutely. So in the cookbook, Cooking at Home, and thank you so much, man, for sending me a copy. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I've read it. it it's fantastic. Um, you and uh, your co-author, Priya, um, she discusses, I, th- I thought a little funny caption I wanted to, to read and get your take on, but she discusses how your palate changes and taste shift to accommodate your life. And she says, quote, Dave always talks about how since he moved to Los Angeles, he has moved away from rich, meaty preparations. He's using tons of citrus, which he never did in New York. He's making mostly vegetarian food. Frankly, he has become an L.A. cliche. Has the change in coast brought about a different perspective? I mean, do you have like a, a pair of vans? Did you buy a skateboard? <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to see me on a skateboard. Um, <laughs> it's such a different place out here, clearly. And just the produce and the fruits and vegetables are just on another planet, man. And and the farmer's market. There's a farmer's market almost every day of the week within probably 30 minutes of wherever you live in Los Angeles. And I just that's just a glorious thing. And there's multiple seasons of things. There's like two springs. There's one in like February and then there's like one in April. I can get spring peas two times. I can go to the farmer's market and get dates, like real dates that were grown in Palm Springs. It's just crazy to me how delicious things are. So I'd be an idiot not to, to, to use more of these things. Like, I, you know how expensive a Meyer lemon is in New York City? Like, they grow literally everywhere. <laughs> so, so of course I'm going to be using Meyer lemons. Of course I'm going to be using all the different types of stone fruits in how I cook at home. And the, 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 just I eat so many dang salads now. I never thought I'd be a salad eater. If there's not a salad... My family's like, what's going on? Because it's just so good, all the vegetables to make salads. So yeah, have I have I become someone that cooks in a way that never thought that I, I just cook completely different than New York, right? Which was more meat-based, more heavy. And this is certainly lighter out here. Yeah, well, you're you're adopting to the lifestyle there, man. And you're you're so right about the farmers markets, man. I I enjoy that too. We had uh we had fruit trees at uh, Post and Bean, my my last restaurant there. We had a Meyer lemon tree, we had a fig tree, and it was just in a little vegetable and herb garden, man. And it was although you know we still had to buy produce, it wasn't enough to supply, but it was a nice conversation piece. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, Dave, I want to take a step back here before going deeper into the book and a few other subjects that I'd like to discuss uh, and talk about how I came to have you as a guest today. So my friend Desmond, an LA resident, art teacher, great guy and a foodie who happens to be African-American, while dining solo as he is often known to do, had an experience at Major Domo, your LA restaurant a couple of years ago that left him a little angry. He wanted to yelp about it, and I asked him if he would rather address the experience directly with you, if that was possible. Long story short, he agreed, and through my dear friend, New York restaurant tour David Rabin, I was able to get in touch with a member of your team. 
ultimately you and Desmond connected. I thought the way you handled that whole situation, man, demonstrated a sensitivity that is really commendable. You flew to LA. I believe you shut down the restaurant for a couple of services to address what you felt was an issue that required that level of attention. Well, Desmond reached out to me recently and mentioned that you and he are still in touch and asked if I would like to have you as a guest on the show, which was very thoughtful of him. And so here we are. So I'm sure you've had customers who have had issues and a normal level of recovery is attempted, but this was different. Why the level of emergency action, Dave, in this case? Well, first of all, you know, I'm blessed that Desmond came into my life because he's one of the kindest most genuine people I've ever met and, um, you know, a wickedly talented artist. So I, I was just, you know, it's funny how circumstances happen. And the reason why I, I took that seriously without having to go into the specifics of that was I was really hurt by it, you know, and there was misunderstandings all around and not all around on our end. It was not a reflection of how I felt that we were right. And I, I say, we try to judge ourselves on the mistakes we made. And I was just, so unhappy with how we handled that situation and it was so polar opposite of how I felt that we would we would treat a situation. And yes, yeah, things get busy in a restaurant and things can be misunderstood, but that to me was just unacceptable. And I, I wanted us to address it and and to use this as a moment to sort of let everyone know involved, like this is a this is a this is a moment where we can learn from all together. And as, as, as an Asian American, I was just like, Hey guys, like, I don't think anybody wants to make anybody unhappy. And at the end of the day, this is hospitality. And Desmond felt angry. And I wanted to tell him that this is not what we believe in. And I'm grateful uh, that he gave us that opportunity. I'm grateful that he listened to us and I'm grateful that we were able to make it right. And we're still going to, tried to make things better. And that's, that's just, um, yeah, that was it. Like I, I when when I heard what happened, I was like, Oh, I, I, it came to my door. I was like, my, my, my email, I was like, Oh no, this is, this is, this is something we have to address right away. And I, I took that as seriously as anything else in my life, you know? Um, so I, I'm grateful for your involvement and I'm grateful that you, you helped us get a clear line of communication and, and yeah, I don't know what else I can say more. I can say a lot more. Clearly. No, man, that I think that that, you know, sums it up. And, you know, a couple of points there, Dave, you know, one, I mean, we are in the hospitality business, right? I mean, we aim to please. You don't go into this business to piss people off. And, you know, the the Yelp culture, while, you know, there there are things that we take note from from Yelp that can be beneficial. And, you know, but then there's the other side of the person, you know, some people who just given the right to, you know, say whatever they want, will and press send. And now you've got that out in the universe. And, you know, I just think given the opportunity, perhaps, and, you know, look, you're not going to get David Chang, you know, on the phone every time you have an issue at one of his restaurants. But, you know, you can get a manager, you can get someone's attention. And before we put folks on blast, I just think, you know, a little attempt to reach out and, and have a personal interaction uh, you know, is just appreciated on on our end. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm guilty of when something happens, like uh, something happens on I pick up food or anything, any kind of service. And I, I have to remind myself, like, hey, like, you don't know what's happening. And I think in, in general, whether you work in restaurants or you dine in restaurants, I think 
having empathy. You know, I, I always think you don't know why someone might be in a bad mood. You don't know if that person just found out their father died. You don't know if their son just found out they have leukemia. You know what I mean? Like you don't know. And we're humans. We make mistakes. And that's what I wanted to understand because it felt so not there. I'm sure that there was just a lot more to that. And I just wanted to understand it and to, 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 to get all the viewpoints. And again, in an ideal world, you'll be able to find that communication. You'll be able to be patient and to, to realize there may be more viewpoints or misunderstandings that are not intentional. Right. Um, and, and all you need to do is talk it out. And that's what happened. And I was so, so happy that we were able to talk it out. But in general, we live in a world of instant feedback, instant response, instant gratification. And I think we're all, I'm guilty of like liking that as well, being part of that. But at the same time, it's like there, there are different shades of gray here. There are different perspectives and not everybody is capable of like wanting to see that. So, you know, I, I don't think that's ever going to be resolved. In fact, you know, I, I wish that could be the case where we're more empathetic, we're more patient, but I, I'm skeptical. Yeah. I'm with you on that, man. And, and, you know, I don't know that our perspective gets changed when you see, Haitian refugees who carry kids on, you know, for, for days trying to get uh, to a better way of life. Um, you know, if you get pissed off when your delivery order is a little scrambled, it's hard to balance those two realities, but uh, this is the world we live in. So, um, you know, a few years ago, going back, you know, I would say five years or so, Dave, I started to feel that uh, the, the hiring pool was drying up in our industry, right? I mean, there was a time I've been in the business since the 70s and through the 80s. I mean, there was a time we would run an ad for hiring and we'd get 300 people showing up. It was like an open call for a movie. And that, you know, dwindled down to like a trickle. And then, you know, the five people you had scheduled, two don't show, you hire one, he ghosts you. I mean, it's been crazy. And, you know, it's funny, I was recently sent a screenplay by someone who used to work for me, and I'm not going to give the story away, but it was written from the point of view of a server who hated his job, hated going to the restaurant, hated the work. And um, the story goes that he ends up taking over the restaurant. I won't give it away. But what bothered me the most was not the fact that he thought that he could run the business better than the owner will say the experience restaurant tour. It was how much he hated the gig. He hated the job. He hated going to work. And as restaurant owners, I guess my question to you is, are we deluding ourselves with the idea of family and team and all that love? I don't know if it's deluding, uh, Brad. I, I feel that what the restaurant industry is, we're finally getting maybe a better understanding or I think people are beginning to realize that the lure of working in restaurants uh, really wasn't as glamorous as it was portrayed to be. And if you think about it, working in restaurants was never seen as a glamorous thing. I have friends in China, they're like, why do people care about cooks? You know, it's like not as seen as you can actually like make a career talking about cooking. Like it's so crazy to them. And I don't know every culture in the world clearly, but it seems to me that cooking seems to be a, 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 a lower entry level position in most cultures. And the discrepancy, the dichotomy of that versus how it was being portrayed, it didn't match up, you know? And, and I got into cooking because it was like not what I was supposed to do, 
right? And and because it was so hard. So I think it was a mismatch of what the culture was portraying it to be versus the reality of how hard it could be. And I think now with more people working and 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 just people have a better understanding now, like, wait, I don't, this is not what I want to do. You know what I mean? It's okay. It's like you chose an instrument when you're a kid and you don't want to play it anymore. Um, and, and the pandemic clearly has altered. If you, if you are not questioning life and your existential sort of meaning, then that I think is weird. Like I think everybody is. And um, I think it's healthy for people right now to be like, I don't want to do this. Or, um, you know, I, I remember the hiring has been an issue mainly because maybe it's been a bubble. So many restaurants have been opening up. I'm guilty of that just as much as anybody else. But you talk to peers in this business and they're like, we almost feel like we have to to keep things afloat, to get better benefits, to to give this opportunity so someone doesn't leave, so on and so forth. And, you know, maybe it was a bubble and the bubble burst. And I feel like before that bubble builds up again, we're able to look at what happened and be like, okay, let's make sure that we can't prevent all problems. Let's just make different mistakes moving forward. And that's the way I look at it. Staying on the subject just for a minute and to segue, you know, you mentioned benefits and, you know, I know you have a soft spot for the independent operator. That's the world I come from. And, you know, we've struggled to provide, you know, benefits and compete with the larger groups that that can. But I had a, a thought too, Dave, you know, again, in the 40 years I've been in the business, man, I've employed thousands of people and, and you probably have never heard of me before David, you know, introduced me. I'm an independent operator you know, on the DL. And yet an actor who will just barely qualify for SAG benefits will get full health care, full dental. Me as an independent restaurant operator, having provided thousands of jobs, there's no government net for me. There's no independent operator. You did this well. You deserve this. There's just nothing. There's, if I haven't saved if I haven't, you know, mortgaged my house on my last place and, you know, I'm out of luck, you know, Medicare is, you know, hopefully going to arrive soon. But do you know what I mean? There's just no the the incentive of uh, and, and benefit to being an independent operator, aside from the joy that I get my personal joy from doing that. And I loved it. And people told me the restaurant business was hard. And I was like, well, you know, I, I kind of enjoy it. There's just nothing else out there for us. Do you, do you have any take on that? Any perspective on that? I I could talk a lot about this because I I feel I got tired of seeing everybody that own restaurants, you know, just because you have a busy, successful restaurant doesn't mean that that person is making any money. Um, That's just the truth of the matter. Some people do, but most people don't. And, you know, when someone says something's a labor of love, that means like there's, it hurts. (laughs) It hurts owning a restaurant. And the, the failure rate for restaurants, even before COVID, was ridiculously high. It's like something over 90% in the first year. And then after, if you make that, it's like another 90% that don't make it after five years. And when you think about it, it is ultimately one of the dumbest businesses anyone could possibly try to get into. It truly is. It is Sisyphean in its suffering and stupidity and, and, and everything that can go wrong will go wrong type of thing. But it's because of that that I find it to be beautiful. It is like a rejection of all the things that are imposed upon you culturally. It is in a weird way, craftsmanship and artistry that I'm going to carve out something that is an impossibility, right? Which is why I always hope that when people, if they do do it, they go full blast knowing that failure is a likely outcome. So if you're going to like fail, if you're going to 
you know, go out, go out swinging. Let's let's do something extraordinary. And I love that. That that's the part that gives me life, which is why I, I, it pains me to see people not playing it safe. I understand playing it safe, but you know, I, that's the that that's the trade off that I didn't love so much. Is I feel like if you're going to do this and put up everything, when I say put up everything, most people can't get loans. You know, you have to put up your house. You have to mortgage anything that you own to get a loan. Where if they came up with a business to like sell some tchotchkes online, they could probably get a loan. You know what I mean? Like that just tells you the economics of the restaurant industry. So I just, I got tired of people trying to put up everything for their dream only to have it like crushed over and over and over again. And if you are successful, seeing a lot of people in this business, we're just talking about the restaurant owners right now, Brad. It's like all they have is maybe a knee replacement, a hip replacement, or, and like, an empty bank account, you know, and, and I, I wanted to make sure that there might be something better there, which is why like currently I'm like, I don't think anybody should get into owning a restaurant unless you can own the real estate, you know, and, and, and that's hard, man. Who's going to get the money to do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can, I can attest to the, uh, to the hip replacement. Thank you very much. Maybe partly due to, you know, basketball, but mostly due to a lot of mileage on the floor, but I want to, I want to, come back to a point that you just raised, you know, kind of the, um, the metaphor of going down in flames, your first place, the, the noodle bar wasn't working. Uh, you had had some pretty good experience in, in high end restaurants, work with some cool chefs. You went out on your own, you opened this, I think it was an 800 square foot space, maybe, maybe smaller, which is, which is really tiny. And you had this concept to do a noodle bar. It wasn't working. And you at one point said, you know what, F this, we're going to go down in flames, turned up the music, turned up Biggie, turned up LCD, said, let's stop doing this food. We're going to do what I feel like doing. And all of a sudden, the place resonated. What happened there, Dave? <laughs> I've had a lot of cancer in my family, and I don't like comparing anything to cancer. But it's funny, though, in the sad, morbid way that you start living when you're dying. And we were going out of business very quickly. And it's like, OK, what are you going to do? We're finding our voice. And I didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing, the team involved. And we were obnoxious. We were dumb. We were young. We weren't really good at cooking either. Um, but I think what would happen was we stopped having an excuse. It was so easy to blame everything, the surroundings, the environment, all of these things, until I realized how fortunate we were to have the ability to, to express ourselves. And while we have that breath to do that, let's, let's do what we should do, which honestly, we didn't know. We were just going to try new things. Every day we're going to try new things to survive. And um, it should never have worked, quite frankly, Brad. Like, it was so dumb that it happened. I mean, I, I think about it all the time. Like, it doesn't help with my imposter syndrome because it was such an impossibility. But along the way, what happened was, by accident, we stumbled upon the idea that everything that was told to us to be true culturally about food was dead wrong, you know? And, and early on, it was a conversation with mainly my, my strength, right? Because it was just too crazy to talk about with anyone else. I was like, oh, these cultural truths in society, in the world, unless it's backed with data, empirical evidence, for the most part, if it is, then you can challenge widely held assumptions about how we live and what we eat and what we listen to. And I saw that happen in the literature. I saw that happen in music. I saw that happen in American society. You know what I mean? Like, that's just progress in a lot of ways. That's also why progress, I think, could be harder, right? In terms of open 
acceptance of new things, right? That gradually becomes sort of the mainstream because, you know, like people want new things and the gatekeepers are the people that are introducing these new things. And I was like, who holds, who becomes a gatekeeper? You know what I mean? Like, I was like, and I looked at around, I'm like, nobody knows Asian food. Everybody that's telling me about Asian food, they're just white people. Seriously, I was like, they don't know, excuse the language, they don't know shit about what it's like to be Korean, what it's like to live in Japan, what it's like to live in Asia. And I also don't fit in with Asian people in America because I'm not like a first gen. I grew up in Virginia. I don't, I've always felt a little bit of an outsider. And I just was like, but I can be me. I can find out what tastes good to me. And instead of trying to find out what was good for everybody else, what was the whole, the, the widely held assumption of what good food should be. I just was like, let's just see if I can bring some ideas that I know work in other countries that are delicious in other countries. And I could talk a lot about this and I'll just summarize this. When I went to cooking school, I come back from Japan. I saw how delicious ramen was. And I we're going over soups and stocks. And I asked my, my French instructor and I don't blame him at all because this is what he was taught. Hey, when are we making pork soup, pork stock? And he's like, that's gross. That's for like, that's barbaric or something like that, you know? to paraphrase and i just that was the first time i was like wait a second that's not right you know what i mean like all i wanted to do was learn french cooking but i had just come back from asia where all the delicious soups were pork based so who was right and who was wrong and i spent a lot of time thinking like well screw this guy and then i thought well no he's just a product of what was taught to him he's a very open great teacher he's just you know Sometimes people don't know when to keep their ears up and to challenge the widely held assumptions about stuff. So that's when we're like, no, we're, we're, we're going to get our own experience, our own data. We're going to collect flavors and ideas and techniques that resonate with people instead of relying on the assumptions widely held by other people. And that's how it all sort of started with us uh, by going out of business, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know what? You don't know what's good. I don't know what's good. Let's go find out because it sure as hell ain't that, you know, restaurant that you guys are writing about in the newspaper that you think is good Asian food or good Hispanic food or good anything. You know what I mean? So that's how it all started was let's just go and see for ourselves. Let's collect our own experiences and data. Dave, man, it's such fascinating. And uh, thank you for that. You know, you're, you're a big thinker, man. And I want to throw a little cultural nuance your way and just get your get your take. So in reading about, you know, how you guys were crashing and, you know, you turned up the music, you flipped the food, you did everything you just described, you started playing Biggie. So I remember a few years ago, John and Vinny, you know, the very popular uh, duo in uh, Los Angeles had just opened their Italian restaurant in Brentwood. And I went for an early dinner actually with my buddy, David Rabin and his wife, they were in town. It was maybe six o'clock and Jennifer Garner was at one table with her daughter and there was, you know, place was packed already at six. And they were playing hardcore hip hop with like unedited, you know, and it, you know, it occurred to me that, wow, man, here I am a black man in America. I have a restaurant that's busy like this at six o'clock. I can't touch this kind of music. My crowd would, you know, would just not. And it feels like as a black man, as a black restaurateur, 
the needle that I have to thread is, is just a different needle, man. The things that I have to consider, you know, I can't even exploit the music that our culture produces. I'm just, that, that's the nuance. I wanted to just kind of get your take on that. I'm shaking my head because I'd be extraordinarily upset. You know what I mean? That the fact that you have to go the extra mile are already in a difficult profession. And I wish I had a better answer to that because I don't. I try my best to empathize. I'll never know what it's like to be an African-American in this country. Even though I am Asian, it's a completely different just understanding in just different worlds. But there are some overlaps. And all I can do is try to imagine what it's like to be me and, and try to sort of thread the needle on my own hand and like would I be able to there's certain are there like certain things that I can't do that are other people can I I I wrestle with that all the time you know what I mean and 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 who gets the right to 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 say these things right like you know someone just showed me like like a this ginger scallion sauce that's 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 now like taken off and I'm like my friend told me, he emails me and he's like, check this out. And I'm like, hey, I, I bet you, I bet you, instead of getting angry at this dude, I bet you this person's Asian. I bet you this person's Asian because they called it pesto. And I said, I'm just as guilty of doing what he's doing because I've done it my entire career in a lot of different ways to, to find a way to thread the needle so you can actually have a platform to maybe not do that down the road. And I don't know if this is answering your question, but it's like, I can also see somebody else not caring about having to thread that needle and just calling it whatever it is and not being aware and not being mindful and it being more successful. All I am, I don't know how I'd feel about that. You know what I mean? Well, let me, let me, let me push you on that just a little bit. And, you know, I, I just, I really like the way you think. So I'm kind of doing just a little exploration here with you, if you don't mind, if you just indulge me, but you know, you, um, I know you were very good friends with Anthony Bourdain. Uh, I'm very sorry. I mean, he was, you know, just loved his show, loved his program, and and you know, was a personal friend of yours. So, you know, I, I'm sorry about your loss there. Again, as a as a black entrepreneur, as a black restaurateur, you know, success has come to you, and you've said it. You know, how did this happen? I was a sucky cook. Um, you know, just a few minutes ago, you apologized for using bad language on the show. I, you know, I don't even know what the censors allow on our show or not. But, you know, I've, I've heard, you know, your language and you talk like my buddies and I when we're, you know, off screen. But as a black entrepreneur, David, I can tell you this, that I don't have the luxury of fucking up. Yeah. I don't have the luxury of using bad language. I don't have the luxury of looking like I don't really give a you know what. Those opportunities aren't going to come to me. When we look at the most prominent African-American chef in the country, Marcus Samuelson, look at his image, man. I mean, that guy, you know, he it's like an ivory soap commercial every time he talks. And I love Marcus. I think he's great. And I'm not saying that, you know, but, you know, compare him to Gordon Ramsay or some of the other, you know, more hard living, more hard charging, you know, my way or the highway type chefs. And, you know, Marcus's image is definitely different than that. And I'm not saying that, you know, every non-person of color, Bobby Flay is a complete gentleman. I love Bobby. But there are things that we don't seem to be able to get away with. If I don't project a certain image, I don't even get the meeting. I don't get in the door. You can be whoever the hell you want to be, and it works. And it, and I do have, you know, there are feelings that you, when you see that, you have feelings about that. So 
you know, I'm just I'm just curious if if you see that if you're if you're and and I guess the last point I wanted to make now that you're in L.A. And again, I come from New York, so I always keep an eye on New York. A lot of friends I have back there. In some way, David, L.A. is even more segregated. Oh, my gosh. Surprisingly. And in our industry, especially, there's like there's elitism. 100%. You know, I mean, Melba was the president of New York Nightlife Association, of the Restaurant Association. Melba's from Harlem. Yet I can name you five of the top restaurateurs in L.A. that are not people of color that would never come to Post and Beam in South Los Angeles. So you got the mic. You can start to have an influence. And I guess that's why I'm sharing some of this information with you. Well, again, like, I appreciate you letting me know and reminding me how hard it is to be a black operator in this country just black business owner in general, part of having to not be beholden to a stereotype or something was, at least for, my, for me, I, I had to break free of what it was to be Asian. <laughs> we have to be subservient. We have to be um, quiet, submissive, all of these things. And that was me before I started Momofuku. I was a wallflower, man. You tell me what to do. I'm going there. I won't question anything, you know? And, 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 and being able to live my life through that restaurant and have that sort of transformation was, I gotta, I gotta do something different. And I didn't want to make Asian people happy per se. I didn't want to, which is why I always thought like, we're, I don't, I never said we made Asian food. I still don't say we make Asian food. I said we make American food. I would never wanted anybody to tell me, you make Asian food, David. Don't tell me that. You know what I mean? Like, we put a lot of effort into finding a narrative, a story that is honest to us. And, you know, like, I've been, which is why I'm like, I'm always shocked at like, oh man, like, I can't believe I have this platform. All I've done is be a loud, obnoxious, you know, just yelling sometimes at the top of my lungs, this is what we're going to do. And I'm fortunate enough that people are like, okay, we're going to go there. We're going to check it out. And I've still never understood that, Brad, you know, and, and I feel there's a burden on me being Asian. Like I, 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 I've had multiple people actually come up to me that are Asian American and say, I don't like your food, but we need you to be successful. Dave. <laughs> I was like, only you guys could give me that backhanded compliment. You know what I mean? Like, we don't want to eat at your restaurants, but we need you to be successful. I never thought, I don't want that responsibility. I've, I really shirked that for a long time. Um, and trying to empathize with what you said is, I, I, I want at least people that are making, or Asian Americans, and this is the best way I can understand so forgive me if it seems from a different perspective, but I'm trying my best to always empathize and find a way that I can connect on a deeper level is when people are pigeonholed because like, I can't do that food. I can't act that way. I have to be this way. Uh, that's a lot of burden. It's a lot of responsibility to live up to. And um, I don't think, again, like I don't think I would have found that if I, you know, I was, I was just, I was going to end everything, Brad. And I mean that my own, everything. I was just, who gives it? Who cares? No one cares. I'm just, and I don't, 
I don't think I would have this luxury to think this way if I wasn't out, like, wasn't able to sort of like, again, like live life by seeing that there was all these other ways to express myself. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, you know? And, and, um, but I also have been like trying to fight against what are the perceived notions of how people look at food or understand food, you know, whether it's, $25 $25 and under as a reviewer. I, I, I said, that's, that's just racist, man. Why do you have two, why do you have two reviewers doing two different reviews? So you're telling me that an immigrant comes to this country, their ceiling is 25 and under, they can never be a four-star restaurant, or if they want to be a four-star restaurant, they got to adopt the white tablecloth. They got to get the taste fin sommelier. They got to buy all the accoutrement to, to, to fit in. Like good food isn't good enough. Like New York times, Best best Chinese restaurant will be two stars. What what? You just said it was the best restaurant. And I just felt it was a it's not even a double standard. We're still so early on in empathizing in different people's situations. And I remain hopeful that people will have a better understanding as we go, as we communicate, that there are double standards, not just in food, everywhere. And like it's not fair that if you're a black business owner, you have to be more mindful of how you represent yourself where someone else can't be. And that's not cool, man. <laughs> that's not cool at all. You should, you should be able to operate your business however the hell you want. But the fact that you don't feel like you can, hey, that we have larger cultural issues here. And I, I'm just talking here, guys. Like I, I don't want to make anyone mad or anything. Like this is just like, I'm just trying to like, figure things out myself and have a better understanding. So the reason I felt I could even approach this subject with you was because I thought that there would be some empathy and not just empathy, but because of your background, there's trauma in your background. I had read some of the things that you deal with in terms of mental health and I empathize, empathize with that, but you know, I know your parents' story, North Korea, South Korea, your relationship with your dad. My dad had anger problems. You know, we, as fathers, we try to improve. Bruce Springsteen said, take, you know, what you get from your mom and your dad and sift the good out from the bad and try to do the good. You know, that's all we're trying to do here is get better. But I thought that there would be an empathetic um, ear, but deeper than that. And here's why, you know, one of the things that uh, was said about you that I, that resonated with me that I think is true, and it puts a little bit more pressure on you, so pardon me. But Pete Wells from the New York Times wrote, He's probably the modern equivalent of Norman Mailer or Muhammad Ali in the 60s and 70s. Somebody whose success in one part of the culture allows him to sound off on the rest of the culture and where it's heading. I mean, that's lofty, admittedly, but there's something to that, Dave. I mean, there's, you're no imposter, man. You, you, know, you got something to say. And as I said, you have the mic, so your words matter. But I'm so flawed, Brad. You know, and, and like, it's just, it's, it's hard to, to be scrutinized when I should never have had this platform. You know, there's this movie, I bring it up a lot in my life, Inside Lewin Davis by the Coen Brothers, where this guy could have been Bob Dylan. He could have been Prince of this late 60s, whatever. But he made a left turn instead of a right turn. He made a decision here instead of that. And that's what I have to remind myself is, I'm just a product of happen chance, randomness, and a lot of luck, right? And if it wasn't going to me, it was going to be somebody else or a host of other people. And 
I've been blessed to work with some of the best people. I've been blessed to work with a lot of things. I've been blessed to make a lot of mistakes along the way. And I can't believe any of that shit, Brad. And the problem is, I think I never realized how giant my fucking, sorry, my giant, again, like here I am, like, I don't want on my podcast, I I, I don't go into any situation and and just like say whatever I want to say. Like, I want to be respectful and I don't want to go on your podcast and curse, but when I get going like this, I, I, I tend to curse. So I just don't want to ever, you know, believe the hype because it's just hard for me, man. It's really hard. And come on, man. If I was reading about someone else, are you kidding me? You just, you just compare someone to Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali. Come on, man, get out of here. (laughs) That's ridiculous. And that's what I have to think about that. But I got to fight to this like giant ego that I can develop that I never thought that I had. So that's why I like, I just got to focus on the work. I got to stop talking so much and let the work speak for itself. And I just think as an industry, as a culture, stop talking, man. Just do the work and let your work reflect what you believe in. And it's not gonna be perfect. No one's gonna be perfect. And I think that's what we have to accept as a culture, man. Like you talked about North Korea, you know, like I've, you know, I've seen it. It's like where you believe something and it better be right. And if it's not right, like you're dead, basically. You're like, that's dangerous. I, I want us to have a healthy discourse to be able to like disagree without feeling you're afraid to to not know something or to say something is wrong. And 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 for me, I, I think that being able to do the work, you're never going to be able to get everybody on the same page. You're never going to make everyone happy. You know, and 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 you just gotta do the work. And I, I try to get lost in the work to my own detriment. Thank you, man, for, you know, just free thinking and indulging me in that little cultural journey and, and your insights. I, I really appreciate uh, the honesty there, David, and, and I'm, I'm rooting for you, man. Let's talk before I let you go about both the, uh, the TV show, the new Hulu show and the book. Um, I watched a uh, episode one of the Hulu show. And I have to say, man, you know, I mean, I've been a, a, I've been eating beyond meat. You know, I tried them initially. I thought it had a little bit of a foul smell, but they've corrected that. I really enjoy the burger. But we're going to have artificial intelligence turning over our steaks at Mastro's. I mean, you're on to something with this show. But just quickly, where do you think the food business is headed? You talked about the independent restaurant being the prey and um, experience is going to change as we know it. Just just give me a, a little bit of your overview on that. Well, Brad, I, we need to be more aggressive in our thinking as operators. And and when I said we were the wildebeest in, 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 in the safari, we, we sort of are. But if you work by yourself, you're going to get eaten. But the strength in numbers and, 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 and you got to test out new ways of moving and maneuvering and organizing in order to, to not be the prey. Right. And, and our industry is just just broken up in so many fractions. So it's hard to see how we're going to have a cohesive voice when it's just independent is genuinely the word, right? Like everybody needs to do their own thing. And I've thought a lot about that. Like how are you supposed to get everyone on the same page where every employee is different, every food that you're doing is different, every town is different, the taxes are different, the rules and regulations are different. But the one thing that we can have is where we want to go. You know, like, that's what we need to start talking about, right? Like, 
where do we want to go? What is the best case scenario, as impossible as it may be? And let's let's work our way to get there collectively and not be at the same point, but we can have the same vision. We all can agree, like, we want this better. We want that better. It'd be cool to, you know what I mean? Like, it, it, it seems like an impossibility, but I feel like the one thing that we can all start to do is talk about what we want. And so much of the restaurant industry has been siloed off. And I think this is the beginning. Um, but like robotics is happening. I think that we're going to be years away from being replaced, but you know, I, you know, Brad, this is such a huge topic. I, I'm going to just, I don't know where to begin, but you know, on one bucket, I, I, I'll say that restaurants are, are, are going to need to have solidarity. We're going to need to put more hypotheses out there to, to test things out, to see what works. We have to be more aggressive in our approach. Like I'll just give you an example of how stubborn we are as an industry. We don't use the metric system. I mean, how stupid is that? We're in a business of pennies and we don't want the more accurate way of measuring things. It's so dumb. I, I can't even believe that as a culture, we won't adopt that. And I think it's a reflection of a lot of things. Like why is the restaurant industry so adverse to change? So adverse to changing new things. And part of the conversation I was talking about with meats or robotics or things like that is I am not smart enough or ability to prophesize what's going to happen. I have no idea, but it would seem to me by 2050, we're going to run out of protein. That seems to be a mathematical fact. It seems to me that we're going to want things faster. It seems to me that we're going to have to replace a lot of labor shortage. So you can put a lot of bets that we're going to have more technology in food. It seems to me that we're going to have more meat alternatives. We already have that. So the question is, instead of saying like, I hate that, you know, I've had this conversation about meat alternatives, whether it's impossible beyond or a lot of mushroom meats right now. I don't want to eat that. That's gross. Or that's Frankenstein. I'm like, that is a lowest hanging reaction. Clearly. I don't want, everybody would rather eat the whole thing, but let's have a conversation where let's, let's start to think about the pros. Okay, let's talk about ahimsa, like nonviolence, uh, if you believe in these things. If you believe in global warming, that environmental degradation is going to be a problem that we are sloughing off to our, our future heirs of, of, of this earth, right? If you believe that, like, there's human suffering, even if you're a vegetarian and you drink dairy, you're taking lives. You know what I mean? Like, you, 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 you there's all kinds of things happening here. So... Even if you don't, let's like, let's answer this, not in the middle. Let's answer this on the extremes. Like it's a mathematical problem. Like scientists don't, you know, theoretical physicists don't answer what, like there's a thousand million stars times a thousand million stars. They're trying to answer like, you know, like the, the origins of the universe. Let's like, like, let's answer this in a way of, in a world where you can accept these are givens, like a geometric proof that these are the problems of the meat industry across the board. On top of that, you're talking about food scarcity, food deserts, food inaccessibility, like people not getting enough to eat. Okay, people maybe want, we want choice. If we live in a capitalistic society, the one of the benefits that's also a negative is choice. So why would we want to limit our choices as much as possible? And I'm just saying in a long-winded way, okay, you have all of these potential negatives that we can agree upon. Let's start imagining what if this thing, even though it's grown from cells or this is grown from mycelium or some kind of meat alternative thing, what if it answers a lot of these things? They're still negatives, but it answers more 
of the negatives. And yet it might create some more negatives in its own right, but don't let perfect get in the way of good. That's what I think. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and like, you know, I, these, there's a lot of problems in the food world. And, and one of which is, is like academically theorizing perfection. You know, like my problem with the slow food movement is, guess what? <laughs> Most people don't want to eat an heirloom turkey. They can't afford it. Problem isn't the heirloom turkey. The problem is maybe the person that's like promoting it. You know what I mean? Like they don't know. Slow food is really good for a select group of people. I have no problem. Who doesn't want to eat organic? Just think about that. The real issue we should be attacking isn't, <laughs> you know, promoting better organic food. The problem we should be attacking collectively is why the hell do we even have organic to begin with? Everybody should eat organic or the best. That's what we, I feel like we should be asking is getting rid of these divisions and being like, nobody wants to eat crappy food. How do we get the best food possible? If the best food possible means collectively we have to eat 20% less delicious, okay, that's okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know me, Brad, are you okay with that? <laughs> you know me, Brad, are you okay with that? Without a doubt. If more people eat better food? Yeah, man. Yeah. like. The show is called The Next Thing You Eat. And I think you made, you know, you drew an analogy to the music industry. I have a lot of friends, some older that have been in the music business for years and then streaming caught them all flat footed as if they didn't see it coming. But Dave, you used an expression, we're the flag, uh, I'm sorry, we're the frog in the hot bath. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not just the food industry, right? That's the planet we're talking about here. And I don't know, I don't know if I'm part of the problem. I am part of the problem too. And that's the paradox It's like, God damn it. Like, I, I hate being a hypocrite. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I want to be the solution, but am I the problem? And that's what I wrestle with my own neuroses. I could, I, I don't have the answer. I have no idea, but for me and where I'm at is, I think that we need to start wrestling with all of this stuff. Cause I don't think we're supposed to have the answers. We just can't. Um, we're limited by certain things, but I like wrestling this stuff out, you know, and, and getting to a new place. I hate stagnation. I hate being on plateau. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those answers are right here. Like, you know, I've been filming the show during the pandemic has changed so much because it accelerated what was going to happen in the restaurant industry at world at large over a 10 to 15 year period. You know what I mean? Like Amazon is only going to send you stuff faster, not slower. It's like that was going to happen 10 to 15 year period. Automation, all of this new food technology, it was going to happen. Now, maybe it's happening faster. Clearly it is. And for me, from how I've been trained to think, from some of the great teachers that I've had, and I've been so fortunate to have a great education, um, is like we should be talking to the people that have already gone through these things. So the future is now, right? Like food automation. When the Roboku was introduced to professional kitchens, say in the 1960s, like a high industrial uh, uh, Roboku, uh, like a um, uh, Cuisinart, I want—I I actually want to talk to the people that first unboxed the first food processor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what the hell were you thinking, and how did that change your business? I want to talk to the first people that are probably still alive that got the first 
automotive, like the those big industrial dishwashers, Brad, that you're familiar with in the kitchens. Like they're amazing machines. They're computers. They do unbelievable amount of work. That probably displaces three to five people. You still need a human to operate it. I, I have trying to do a deeper dive into the automotive industry in Detroit because that's what I think is probably going to be the case where, you know, you have human, human, robot arm. Human, human, robot arm. Maybe that is the case. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but we can talk to the people that have been affected by that change to get a better understanding of how that we might feel about it ourselves in the restaurant industry. Again, we don't know the exact technology, but we can start to prepare ourselves for what that feeling might be like, better allowing us to sort of implement it in better ways, you know? And, you know, I, I want to take things to like, the breaking point. Like, I think my father would not be in this country today if there was automotive, like a robotic, like a handyman or uh, the dishwashers that we have today. Why would he? Nobody would have hired him. So question then is, we already have a hiring shortage. I have no doubt that people are going to hire robots. You know, we sort of already have robots. Look at your dishwasher, right? Look at some of the, the kitchen tools that are in your, you know, disposal, sous vide, whatever. You know, we're, we're replacing jobs already. So I don't know, but the conversation I should be having is, or I think, where do these people go? If an immigrant comes to this country that doesn't speak the language, right? Where do they go if they're not gonna be employed there? So whose responsibility is that? I don't know, but again, we can start to have this conversation. So maybe somebody else has the bright idea to better implement an, some kind of solution for a problem we know we're gonna have. Well, Dave, you know, you kind of end bringing up a question. And I think in, in listening to your thought process here, I think that's that's really the, you know, we have to start with the right question, right? The answer is out there and will be elusive, but that's the discovery process. But if we can't even agree on what the question is, yeah. how do we, you know, how do we have the conversation? How do we move towards a solution? So, you know, and, and when we look at our polit politics and, you know, we can't even agree on facts anymore, it's it seems like a, an escalating, proliferating, you know, just ball of confusion, but uh, we have to keep talking about it and trying to figure it out. Before I let you go, the book, Cooking at Home, I mean, it's right on time. Obviously, you know, we're fans of restaurants. We want people to keep going out and eating and supporting restaurants, but more people are cooking at home. It's a fact. One of the things that I really thought was, was really cool about the book, man, aside from the numerous recipes, uh, not recipes, but the dishes that you offer and you illustrate in there are some of the little interesting tidbits. I mean, you had a neuroscientist talk about food safety and and actually how cooking um, without following a recipe, like thinking your way through it is actually good for your brain. Yeah. <laughs> so it made me think about the difference between like finding your way around a neighborhood by exploring it or putting ways on your phone and just letting the phone take you there while you talk to your friend and you don't even pay attention where you're going. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to this book and I think it's much more subversive in, in retrospect than I initially thought it was gonna be. But like even even that, like we, we probably have a, a dozen essays written by food scientists that are not white. They're all people of color. I, when you think about a food scientist, in my mind, I've been trained to think it's some white dude with glasses and a lab coat. No, man, like the next generation of people that aren't going to be like that. So I was like, this is a great opportunity to let people know that this is this is like there are other experts out there. We can change who are the gatekeepers in food 
if just give people a different platform. So I was so stoked to be able to have that because if you look at just food science and I'm friends with a lot of these food sciences, they're just, you know, white dudes. And I think this is going to be a different next 10, 20 years in terms of the people that talk about it, because we can start to question certain things. And what I, what I wanted the book to do with, with uh, Priya is we began with the idea that I don't know. My mom has never taught me how to cook. She's never written a recipe down. I think a lot of people where they feel like they, they come from, if they're lucky enough to have a family that cooks really well, that, that they're able to commune over food. It's amazing. It's like the only good thing that ever happened in my household was everybody likes to eat and everybody likes to cook. But I have been guilty and I know I'm not the only other person that said, hey, mom, or hey, aunt, hey, emo, can you write this down? Can you tell me how you make this? I just want it. I know so many people that call somebody in their family and say, just give me this recipe. I want to make it. And I was like, oh, man, I missed an opportunity to actually set time to actually learn the stories to actually see why they make something the way they do, to spend time with that person. And then it got me thinking like, oh, I'm such a dummy, Dave. The next revelation of, oh my God, I'm so stupid, was, <laughs> I was like, oh wow, you know what? <laughs> maybe, maybe this whole idea of writing recipes is stupid. Because that got me thinking, again, I'm not an anthropologist, sociologist, expert, historian at all. But from my armchair perspective, I was like, the rest of the world has been going around a lot longer than a Eurocentric American, you know, codify everything cookbook forever. You know, most people I know that come from culture outside of America, they don't write recipes down. Maybe the weird people is American recipe writing culture and everything else is what is acceptable and normal. And we've been trying to force ourselves into some kind of box that's never gonna make sense. So I was like, I'm the jerk. I shouldn't tell my mom, write this recipe down. I should be the one learning how to cook like her. <laughs> not, not, the, not, not the other way around. And, and I don't know if I communicated that right, but like that was like aha moment. I'm like, recipes, in some way, that's like, like mind control, you know what I mean? Like to a degree, it's a good starting point. But like, to me, as I learn more about cooking, the more I learn about the food I care about, cooking for my family, as cliche as it sounds, it's like, oh, I never got to do this because I basically cook professionally right off the bat. And it's changed how I want people to feel. I want people to genuinely feel love, not some robotic hospitality, you know? Like that feeling you get from, a beautiful made home cooked meal can be transformed or can look like a different in a variety of ways. But I was like, you can't write that in a recipe, man. You either care or you don't care. There's no in between. And like, yeah, the, 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 the hypocrisy is we wrote a recipe, a book about no recipes that sort of has recipes. But I genuinely hope that when people find certain things or they're like, oh, why is this guy talking about pho? Well, the situation is, if I'm in a place with no pho, I want to make pho. This is how I make my pho. I hope you never make it again. Because I hope you love it so much that these are the people that you should listen to and you can go down that rabbit hole. But the whole idea is, I don't want people to use this book. I want people to be like, I never need a cookbook. I need to go down rabbit holes and learn 
I want to learn more about culture. I want to learn. You know, how many people, how many people do you know? Uh, and, and like, I, you know, I know Desmond's trying to perfect this jerk chicken recipe. How many people, you know, just make jerk chicken? Because it's delicious. It is extremely delicious. One of the great culinary combina combinations of all time. How many people do you think just stop when they go online and they say, ah, I saw somebody on Food Network make jerk chicken. I'm going to make that. And oh, there's like 100 jerk chicken recipes. I'm going to do it this way. How many people do you think actually ever go beyond that? Not many. I mean, as soon as you brought up jerk chicken, I'm thinking Jamaica anyway. Yeah. And I'm trying to get it as close to that experience. But, you know, I, I take your point, And I think the book, they really, really, um, you know, it illustrates that very well. It's, it's about thinking through the experience of cooking. And, and I think it's beautiful, man. And it, there's a lot of really insightful guides in there, tiers one through three about, you know, building out a new kitchen. Uh, my wife and I are actually renovating a house right now. So it comes in handy for us. So um, I recommend it highly. Before I let you go, you wrote a thesis on Thoreau. And uh, I happen to have a small plaque next to my toothbrush that has one of his famous quotes that I look at every morning. And the quote is, go confidently in the direction of your dreams, live the life you've imagined. So David Chang, are you living the life that you imagined? <laughs> well, it's a great quote. I don't know. I, I, I'm a neurotic mess, Brad. <laughs> Every day I'm at war with myself. And what I'm trying to be, what I, what I want to imagine is I just want to be a good dad. And I want to, I want to not harm anything or anybody. And I just want to do better and improve myself and, 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 and be a good custodian of everything and, and just self-improvement, man. And I have the, the luxury to be able to do that. So if I'm going to do that, I got to do it really well. Right on, man. David Chang, you got the mic. I thank you for joining me. Corner Table Talk. It's really been a pleasure, man, talking to you. Thank you. Brad, thank you so much, man. So welcome, everyone, to this segment of the show we call How We Move with my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz. What's happening? Howdy-do, Sir Johnson. I'm good. I'm good. So David Chang. Well, that's a lot. I mean, you know, the fact that all that spirit and wonder and thought and queries in one body and mind is fascinating. I think it's essential. He certainly is not lost for thought. You know, it's clearly more than food on a plate we address with him, but, you know, food for thought, you know, and I actually appreciated hearing the depth of how he dives and journeys, you know, about, you know, the inequities and, and such while simultaneously his own path of success continues to rise, but he doesn't stop there. He's still asking, you know, the questions of significance. I mean, uh, he's so accountably honest, um, which is very human and real to hear, you know. How was it for you as a, as a co-restaurateur? Uh, or, yeah, or you know, what, what I found really fascinating was, you know, we, we talk, you and I have talked about it extensively and, you know, we know that our assimilation into the larger culture is fraught with challenges, right? And, and we articulate those and experience them or frustrated by them. And when I think of someone like David, I don't necessarily, my, my first thought was not, oh, he has some of the same challenges, you know, he's, you know, his culture has had to assimilate. 
um, because I, I view them as kind of like they're 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 a little more stealth in their assimilation than you know we and our obviously our backgrounds are different you know they they've chosen to come here I mean there's you know right. a whole lot of different circumstances but the idea that you know he had to shed whatever imagery was associated with a quote unquote Asian chef um, and discard that and be willing to just do his own thing. I thought that was analogous in, in some ways to uh, my endeavors. I think it's one of the key things we need to have more conversations about so that no one feels like the lone man out or the odd man out when it comes to um, pronouncing yourself in an environment that often renders you invisible or or insignificant. So when he talks about the soul searching challenge of, um, you know, like a socio status of status quo of um, expectations, tough. You know, when you come and you're a kid and you are just you, and then you have assignments. I mean, we, many of us adjust or adapt to what is that paragraph and am I the author of it? Right. And how do I walk in it? Because I might want to change some lines here every now and then. But if you're going to give me a stagnant paragraph, I don't know if I can live it. So is the frustration mine or the one who authors it? And, you know, I'm one that feels that we are not really the we, we have we have taken on the, the title of minority. But in the collective, we're not a minority. So what why are we? surrendering what makes us think that the status quo is to be defined or lived up to by someone else and what statements do we get to make and insistence because he clearly is not pausing what it also made me think about too was you know and as you're describing it you know i'm thinking of you know when when in thinking of a concept right i mean i can relate this to post and beam to some extent you know i, I went around the neighborhood and took surveys what are you all looking for what would you all like i knew Deb, debbie allen had a dance academy with kids across the parking lot and so so much of what went into that concept was my attempt to kind of synthesize all of those wants and needs into something that worked as a restaurant as opposed to me just going and looking at that space and saying, here's what I'm in the mood for. Let me let me do my thing, you know, and I don't know that one's better than the other. But his his thought process kind of led me to that point where, you know, how much do we take in uh, to your to what you just said? You know, we were born with this pure, you know, we, we kind of gravitate towards the things we like, the things we love yes. until we're told we shouldn't. Right. That's right. And first of all, as part of your nature, I think we should always do a social a social feasibility when we're going someplace. How am I a part of the neighborhood? And I recall you talking about moving to the area to set up shop. But did people in the area know that the area was actually in Congress with your soul nature being, notwithstanding your 30 years prior being physically in other locations, but it's the same you. It's not a new Brad Johnson. It's the Brad Johnson all the while. And the effort to build it, create it, understand who was in and around and your willingness, your engagement, your even bringing me in. I mean, I was flying in on, on for Sundays to do the international brunch setting to get people over the hill and to mingle and so that's who you are and let's hope more people who want to serve a broader population think to do that so that the, the customer base really is being reached 
And that's all the customers, the, the neighbors wanted. The, the neighbors wanted, oh, can we come in? And that became, you know, their Sunday brunch after church was real. And the things that you had on a menu, you know, the caliber and the presentation was inviting, but it was all familiar enough, right? That, you know, the the pieces of food, the 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 areas that people could break bread and know that this is indeed my Sunday brunch and then dinners. And then I know folks that made it their joint, their spot. You know, they just sat, you know, alongside the bar wherever there was a single chair. They didn't mind where it was their spot. Like my daughter's godfather, Ndugu Chancellor, it was his spot, him and his fellas, you know. And so I think that becomes really significant in the cross section of people that can come in, whether you're on the high side of the hill or the low side of the hill or 90008, you know. Um, and that's where we, we all need like a central park, a place where everybody's allowed to walk in whether you're on the Fifth Avenue side of Central Park or the Harlem side of Central Park, uh, we can all go in there. We can all share. We can all break bread. And so that's when I listened to his journey and even his intrigue about the difference of being a New Yorker versus being in Los Angeles and the, the statement about there being two springs. That was kind of funny, you know, uh, and what foods you find in those two different spring springtime periods. I would love to watch and listen to a David Chang because he's an evolutionary guy. You know that he's not done. He's trying to figure it out while raising a family and moving in real time to his existence. And very honest. I, I appreciated hearing his voice um, in this context, even as a man of color in America who is wondering what does that mean? What it means most to him is the person that he said he would love to have had that dinner with, who was his great grandfather. That journey is not gone within him as he quests and then raises a son, you know, as well. Yeah. Or two. Did he say he has two, two. children? Yeah, yeah two children. You know, how do you pass that on as you're figuring it out? We all know that as parents. You know, so, you mentioned Ndugo, I, I sure do miss him. We spent a lot of afternoons at Post and Beam together. Yeah. And uh, I, I came to know more. It's one of those humble guys that you, you know, I found out more about him at the memorial service yeah. that they oh, had wow. for him than he would have ever shared with me in terms of just how, you know, precious, how involved a precious he was soul. university. And precious soul, long list yeah. of credits and is accessible to everyone. That's what yeah. I'm talking about. But I think most people are that it's not everybody is that headline or that front page. And if they can find a place to break bread and pull a chair up to a counter in order to just relax, mm -hmm. it's really key. Be themselves, you know, like the corner table. I mean, your father had, was like a corner table master, you know? So the fact that you had it in each one of your restaurants, as well as this platform is essential. I think most of us simply want to find a comfortable place where we can break bread. So speaking of, and before I let you go, where where are you comfortable placing and breaking bread? Well, I know what you, that. What are you thinking about? Right, you know, I'm a I'm pretty much a food fusionist. <laughs> you know, I like the mixture of flavors and taste. So it, it it's not like it has to come show up in meat form. So even now that I'm more plant based, I'm not a vegetarian, but I love the fact that meat, the new meat, the plant based meat, can bring in and fuse some of those those flavors. And I like stew size pieces. You know, I'm a tapas girl kind of. And, you know, whether I'm cooking myself or di dining out, 
And, you know, I've just been on the road and upon landing last night, we went to a place, three of us dined, and we decided just to get foods that were in the middle of the table. And it was a kind of an Asian fusion last night, not one particular region, many flavors, no condiments that you need to add, perfect for me. And, you know, I was searching, I'm on my way to Atlanta next month, and I was trying to figure out a, a location that I could um, take some people to while I'm there. And I came across this uh, uh, Caribbean restaurant. Yum. <laughs> Yum. You know, I, I have a lot of soul foods, you know, so I start to do a dance once I know I'm about to dive into whatever culture it is. And so there's this brother, Chef Rob's Caribbean Cafe. Uh, his name is Robert Gale. Oh my God. When I just looking at his information on the online and then listening from to other people about what he has there. Um, so I tell everybody go there because the he works with his wife, his son. It's wonderful imagery, his parents all alongside him. He himself is Jamaican and found his um, way in New York as his parents traded in the island of Jamaica to for the uh, island of New York, raised in Brooklyn, and then started to work with Sean Puffy Combs until he moved into his own genre. And when I think about the things I've been reading and I can almost smell the aroma because I know food, I know how the seasons break up, the herbs break up. So even though I haven't gotten my hotel set yet, I do know I'm gonna be breaking bread at, uh, he doesn't know it yet, but Chef Rob's um, Caribbean Cafe. One of the things I'm looking for, they have like this uh, jerk, chicken egg roll <laughs> chef rob's caribbean cafe that's what it's called in atlanta in atlanta and it has all the the typical thing the jerk chicken the oxtail the raw tea and and everything and and then he has like a real a real feature you know on on the weekends you know with you know a nightclub atmosphere a kind of um what do they call it happy hour so to speak and another time he alternates and goes into different communities with a food truck. For those who can't get to the part of Atlanta where he is, he goes to them. I just love the innovation. I think, as you said with Chef David Chang, that the crisis, the unrest, the pauses, the shifts of last year brought all kinds of innovative ways of reaching people, touching people. So this is not just a delivery service. He actually has a mobile truck as well where... He takes food to the community, just as scented, just as aroma fill, just as tasty. Well, I'm going to expect a uh, a full report next month, and maybe even a you know a little chicken patty. You might be able to bring a brother, you know. Bring a brother, you know? <laughs> well, I have to look on. The, so I'm going to give you the link, so you can look on the menu. Whatever it is All you right. get, I'm going to send it to you overnight. All right. Bet. Ambassador Shabazz, how we move? You know how to move. I know how to move. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> See you soon. You too. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson. Produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production. <laughs>